Good evening. From Blizzard-bound Boston, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Today, I've got one of my regular panel, Dr. Bruce Garrick. Bruce, welcome to the show. Yeah! Hello, gamers! We also welcome 2x2 two two Games, Tomislav Uzlots, designer of 3MA's favorite war game of last year, Unity of Command. Tomislav, so glad you could join us. Thanks, Rob, uh, and hi to everybody, including Bruce. Hi, Bruce. <laughs> Hello. Uh, so Unity of Command came out at the very tail end of 2011, and I think one of the great treats of 2012 was watching this fantastic little war game uh, earn this reputation as one of the most accessible and engaging war games probably of like the last decade. Since then, 2x2 have released the Red Turn expansion, which adds a ton of new late war scenarios covering the Soviet advance across Europe. Uh, but before we start diving into Unity of Command and Red Turn, I was hoping uh, that Tomislav could tell us a little bit about uh, his wargaming origins and some of the experiences that informed his design of Unity of Command. Uh, Tomislav, could you give us some highlights of you know from your wargaming biography? Yeah, sure. Why not? Um, I, I think you know, um, perhaps not very originally, the, the game that really influenced me the most is uh, Panzer General II. I mean, I played the original Panzer General and all the various incarnations of, of uh, the second series. But um, at the time that that game came out, I was uh, like in my uh, college or whatever. And um, I remember almost like failing a year in college for just obsessively playing this game. Yeah. Um, and then sort of over the years, I've played um, other games uh, more, you know, sort of served as an introduction uh, to the hobby. But I guess I, I, I never really uh, sort of, I wanted to re sort of relive that excitement that I got when I played that game for the first time, um, which sort of led to Unity of Command. I was informed by these other games, um, mostly by the SSG series of games. I don't know if you played it. You mean like uh, uh, the Ardennes Offensive in uh, Course and Pocket? Um, uh, mainly Course and Pocket. Okay. Mainly Course and Pocket. Now, I've never played uh, Course and Pocket. Now, if I recall that, that's sort of regarded as a masterpiece of war game design, isn't it, Bruce? Yeah, it's also a masterpiece of kind of hardcore war game design. I mean, that's really... Uh, it's interesting that uh, Thomas Love would say that that, um, that has a big influence because um, it seems like Unity of Command took everything that's great about Course and Pocket and just really streamlined it. Um, it's. I mean, they're both one. They're both really board games in my mind. But uh, Course and Pocket is kind of the ultimate board game, c- computerized board game, and uh, Unity of Command is the ultimate uh, sort of essence of board gaming. So that's that. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. What uh, T- Thomaslav? What actually about Course and Pocket did you find that was that that when you say influence? What what did you take out of that that you felt had to be in Unity of Command? Well, many many things. Uh, I think the, the interesting that's where I got the idea that uh, the front line can, for for example, that the front line can be a thing on the map. Um, because obviously, when I played Panzer General, the you, you know you have just these units. Uh, they do have zones of control, but basically you're just moving units across the map. There's no notion of a front line. Um, whereas um, in Course and Pocket, the front line is a thing. It's actually a bit more complex than in Unity of Command. You have the sort of no man's land and stuff. Um, and then 
I thought that was interesting because it's a, you know it's it's another element in the game. It's not just the map and the units. There's this frontline thing that sort of has its own influence on the game because it defines like the penalties for movement and so on. So that sort of gave me the idea that you could have these um, sort of mechanics that are um, outside just the units that you could have. Um, like what you have in Unity of Command, that you have a supply layer and then you have uh, things like that. So just the idea that you can have a front line um, was, uh, you know, very powerful. Well, you also, however, pretty decisively rejected the idea of uh, unit stacking and uh, squares with ovals in them, since you guys uh, came up with your uh, with those little bobbleheads. How did that whole thing? What 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 made you decide that you were not going? You, While you were going to make. Uh, a war game and a kind of a hardcore war game. You are not going to make uh, one with counters and chits. Uh, we, uh, I, I didn't want to make. I, I just thought that we could because we had a very talented uh, designer, Nanat, who was uh, the, the design of the game. I thought it would just be wasteful to not, you know, produce some sort of a, you know, figurative representation of, of the units. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, we, we have to go back to as I said. I think the principal influence is uh, perhaps the. Uh, Panzer General series, uh, and so I just I, I wanted to have uh, a figurative representation of the units, uh, but Nenad came up with the idea of uh, sort of the busts. Mm-hmm. That was completely his. Interesting. Um, but but I, 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 I he showed me his uh, his sketches for the busts, and I just immediately said yes, and I never looked back from from that you know moment. It's just. We were sitting discussing how we're going to represent units, and mm-hmm. he said, I have this idea about these little busts, and it just immediately felt right to me. You know, all this, you know, slight controversy about them that we had notwithstanding. I, I just think it's, uh, I, I like them, you know. Yeah, I saw that you had to, you, you had to create an option for uh, NATO counters uh for you some people really wanted to use the nato counters for unity of command and eventually uh what was it like a re- like shortly after red red turn you created that option it's it's a mod there are actually there are several mods out there that will uh that will give you uh nato counters i mean the discussion has been uh you know there's been discussion about this nato counters obviously historically are not uh particularly you know, accurate. It's NATO, so they're after World War II. Right. They're a bit of a standard in the wargaming community, uh, and I can I can actually accept that. We, our position is that we didn't really uh, include them in the original game. The you know, from an engine standpoint, we cannot easily just build them into the game. So if they're a mod, I totally support it. Right. But um, you know, we're not. It's it's not a part of the game as we made it. So I, I'm curious. What kind of design experience uh, did you and your team have prior to Un- Unity of Command? Uh, with the games? Yeah. Uh, well, I, I had I had no experience with games. Um, Nenad, uh, who's our graphics designer, uh, is actually um, been an indie game developer for a number of years, but he made different types of games. So. Um, uh, he has made a really nice uh, platformer called Rescue the Beagles. If you want to check it out, you might check out his site, 16by16.org. 
Okay, we'll put that link to that at the bottom of the podcast. Yeah, uh, and so you know he's he's the one with some uh, games experience. I was just really driven by the idea that I uh, sort of wanted to <clears throat> create something that was you know as simple to play as Panzer General, but perhaps more grounded in, in historical reality, something like that. You know, I, I'm curious how you got to the final design of Unity of Command. Like, did like is what we play now? very close to what you had what you first had in mind when you sat down and decided to make this game or did you have to do a lot more you know editing and tuning of, of what your idea was until you arrived at what made a great game no definitely a lot of uh, a lot of uh, there was many iterations of the game uh it, it's some of the original game ideas are in there. Uh, I think basically the, the logic of, of this process is, is purely iterative. You try something, see if it works, and then you sort of shuffle things around until you get sort of a proper mix. So the, the best best I can exp uh, sort of uh, compare it with is uh, cooking, perhaps. So, you know, you add a little bit of salt, you add something, and then... What were some... I, like it's so unity of command is so simple and uh really quite elegant and what i've always sort of wondered is you know when you started creating it uh did you initially like did you initially start with something maybe a little more complicated and then scale that back or did you start with something even simpler and build it up to be a little more uh sophisticated uh, I started with a very simple prototype that was I don't know if I sent I might have Rob I might have sent you actually a screenshot of it that the initial prototype was made with graphics from the Panzer General One game. Yeah, I've, uh, no, I've never seen that because I just I just scraped the the, the graphics asset and it just put together a really hasty prototype. Um, and then no, I was just I was just sort of I had a wish list and I just kept adding things and if they worked I uh, kept them. If they didn't work, I threw them out. And towards the end of the project, because it was taking a long time, I sort of started to prioritize and then some things sort of fell out uh, because there was no you know time to do it to do them and uh, sort of. It was like a triage process towards the end. How, how much research did you do for the game? Uh, I did uh, for the original scenarios. I did plenty of research. Uh, I read uh, many books, uh, but it's also something that's my uh, that interests me privately. So I would read the books anyway. Um, for the scenarios uh, in the expansion, Red Turn, research was mostly done by uh, Peter de Jong, who is our uh, scenario designer. He's from the Netherlands, and we included him uh, for the uh, expansion. He's, uh, if you know him around Wargame Forums, Comrade P. Hmm. What, uh, so, tell me about, the, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by the way that the, the kind of the design turned out because I feel like, uh, like you guys had, a, had an idea about a game and you made this, I mean, the, you made a game that sort of tells a story over a whole bunch of scenarios. And they're, they're, some great advantages to that and and but there are some drawbacks is that how you you envision the game i mean uh you know you said it's in, in, um it's uh influenced by panzer general so obviously that's that's a very panzer general type thing 
Um, but you, I mean, you, the way that you go through your, your scenarios are historical, obviously, so it's important to have them, uh, you know, be thematically consistent and, um, and kind of all hang together. So that, is that something that you guys planned from the very beginning? Um, yeah, it's it's the kind it's it's the way that I see the the, uh, the entire uh, thing the the entire game. Um, I, it's for me it's it's a kind of a vehicle to visualize uh, to visualize the Eastern Front at that time that we are uh, that we're playing it uh, because it's like a, it, it it's a big it's a big area geographically and. Uh, and it's uh, it's you know there are many battles. Um, obviously, the Russian landscape is not terribly varied, uh, and so it's you could be forgiven for sort of mixing up. Does Kursk come you know before Kharkov? Or how many Kharkovs <laughs> were there? Right. Uh, you know, and so so I think for me, you know, I just I just find uh, I get a lot of value out of uh, sort of looking at this campaign map and sort of understanding what leads to what and that's I, I think what Bruce refers to as the story um, you sort of go from one scenario to another but then you're armed with an understanding of how each one of them came about Bruce I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk about that a little bit more because I think for me uh, particularly what I've been playing more recently is Red Turn and I feel almost like that is covering such a span of time that it, each scenario feels a little more detached for me personally, mm -hmm. like detached from the last. Right. Uh, whereas I felt the original German campaign in Unity of Command, um, if, if there was a story, and there's that fork where there's the attack to the south and then there's right. the push on Stalingrad. Right. But if there was a story, I felt it was uh, certainly like the changeover from a very swift and sure advance where, you know, victory is really assured. It's just a matter of how quickly... Uh, to a a really ugly and terrifying grind, uh, but but I'm curious if if you see because you know the subject matter uh, you know far better than I, uh, if, if you see a uh, you know a, what else you see in the story in Unity of Command. Well, I mean, I, I think you you nailed it right there, which was that the you know the 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 Stalingrad campaign is a, is a great uh, sort of thematic uh, progression and the branch point of of uh you know the attack to the south versus the you know the drive on stalingrad is is uh i think it's a really um clever way of taking a historical subject and taking um and making it into a narrative that you sort of that you can control or or that at least that you have an input into um that uh that makes it feel historical but it gives the player some agency so i, I really like that uh, aspect of it, I feel like um, that was something really unique about the Unity Command, and something that you really don't see in many war games. And that's also something that you don't see. I mean, people, games like Combat Mission, people are always, um, you know, wishing that they could take their scenarios and put them into some sort of overall campaign, and uh, that that sort of uh, context for every scenario is something that a lot of war gamers are looking for. And to do it in the way that Unity of Command did, I thought was extremely, uh, I just think it was really good, really good game design. Now, the, the problem that it, it, it gets you, though, is that you, if you choose that, uh, if you choose that topic, and, and most good topics like this are, um, are kind of one-sided. And I mean, I think it's a problem that 
I mean, people have written about ad nauseum sort of in war game designs that you can't, it's, it's so hard to find battles or campaigns that are really balanced in any way or that give each player uh, something interesting to do at the same time. So, you know, a Stalingrad campaign is not in any way interesting for the Russian player until, uh, until sort of November 19th. Uh, and, you know, the rest of the time he's just kind of sitting around trying to save as many units as possible. Um, and so the way that the game plays as a, you know, as a single player, you know, each, each scenario is supposed to be played from a certain side. So you have to design the scenarios in such a way that the, you know, the attacking player has the, has the interesting decisions to make and, and has a timetable, et cetera, et cetera. That's great. It, it, it's, I think it really kind of precludes uh, much interesting multiplayer. I mean, maybe you disagree, but, but I think that that's kind of the price that you pay. And, and, and I, I think it's very hard for games of this type to be good multiplayer games and good history uh, and good solo games all at the same time. I think that you have to give up one or more of those things and, and really focus on the, the game that you want to make. And I, it's very clear to me what Unity Command was. Unity Command was this sort of narrative, uh, joined scenario, uh, solitaire war game that was, you know, reasonable history in, in terms of, uh, you know, a game with simple mechanics. Uh, and uh, the uh, Red Turn, I think, uh, is the same thing. It's it's uh, it's a game in which the, um, the Germans kind of, they, they don't have much to do uh, I think I know there's the there's the Hungarian scenario uh, where the you know, the Germans attack and that's kind of a, a more balanced scenario. But still, you're 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 stuck with taking the the game from one side or the other. Yeah, we had uh, we had plenty of problems to, to even find as many access scenarios for Red Turn as we did. Right. Um, it's it's really fairly one sided. Um, yeah, I, I, you know what Bruce said. Uh, not much to add. I, I, I might add that um, the statistics from our server sort of tell that indeed most people play the game in single player. Although, you know, some people report that it's a blast for them in multiplayer. Obviously, I'm totally biased. I just cannot, you know, be relevant what I tell you. But um, some people report that it's good for them, but I don't see it sort of taking off in a big way as a multiplayer game. So, I, I'm I'm curious, uh, you know, because you know I I just tend to I just tend to play it single player in part because every time I sit down to play Unity of Command, uh, I want to go back to that one scenario that I couldn't quite master, and I end up uh, spending the entire afternoon uh, retrying uh, different approaches to an objective. So I, I I I you know never really get around to multiplayer. What you know. I assume you played some multiplayer. Uh, you know, maybe you could make the case for us to play multiplayer. Like, what are some good what are some good things to do uh, if you know if Bruce and I want to sit down and uh, uh, bash armies at one another? Well, you could. I I could recommend some scenarios. Uh, you know, looking at the statistics, uh, people tend to play either Stalingrad or Second Kharkov. Um, and those battles seem to be uh, you know, favorites. Uh, it seems to me that the Russians defensively uh, have something to say uh, in Stalingrad. 
And historically, the German approach to Stalingrad, typically in, in you know, if you watch a short documentary, it's sort of glossed over. You know, the Germans just sort of arrive as if by bus into Stalingrad. <laughs> but it's really not true. The, the last push, uh, as they were getting, and if you play, I think that if you play the game in, uh, in the scenario in the game, you get the sort of correct feeling that uh, they uh, really had significant trouble even getting into the uh, into the city. Um, so, so we got those two scenarios where I think the uh, Soviets have something to say, or, or uh, in Kharkov, the Germans. Uh, but um, the, the thing that I sort of want to say about the uh, multiplayer and unity of command is that it's one of the characteristics of the game that I sort of put the, in there intentionally is sort of working against us in, in multiplayer, and that is... Um, the game is sort of intentionally unbalanced uh, in this way. Um, if you break the front line, and we didn't even touch the issue of supply yet, but if you break the front line, that, uh, that represents immediate danger for your opponent. Uh, the game is very nonlinear in this way. If you break through, uh, you know, you can force a decision within a turn or two. Now, in terms of like pure strategy game design that might sound a little bit unbalanced. If you look at the historical situation, it's not all that unrealistic. Uh, you know, historically, um, you know, you may look at Second Kharkov. When the Russians broke through in Second Kharkov, there was much panicking in the German headquarters. Um, and then they sort of turned it around into a major coup. You know, so, and, and they won this battle uh, with terrific casualties to, to the uh, Soviets. So the game is really unbalanced in that respect. It's like all or nothing. It, and it can swing either way very violently. Um, and I'm not sure that's ideal for, for a multiplayer uh, setting. So it, the, the multiplayer also is, is hamstrung by the fact that the... Um, the way that you score the game, you know, there, there's certainly a, a point at which the, you know, a player can't win, right? I mean, you're, you're, if you, if you don't get your objectives on time, then that's it. And you can see the, the point level and then you might as well just give up, which is something that I, I kind of don't like about, uh, some games where, you know, well, and something I like about a lot of games where people just kind of quit or they just resign like, oh, I can't win. And, and the really good ones I feel, and I'm not saying that Unity Command isn't a good game because I really like it a lot. It's just that it, it doesn't give that player a chance to say, you know what, I'm just going to play this thing to the end, and you, and I think if I uh, do this and that and the other thing, then I can kind of squeak out a victory. It, it, it's it's kind of, there's a hard stop where, okay, well, I can't get enough points. Uh, it's turn four. It's a seven-turn game. Uh, let's quit. That's an interesting point. I just I never gave it. Uh, it's the first time I had it brought up. It's true that mathematically you can get into a situation where you can't win, and it I imagine that it, you can run into a situation where that's like an artifact of scoring, uh, and that, yeah, I, I see what, you, what, what you're saying. Um, uh, look, I don't know, it's a new system, uh, I'm, I'm not giving up on multiplayer, um, and we're going to, suppose, uh, I, I mean, we're going to talk about it uh, later, I think, uh, you know, the plans for the future and so on, and I want to make perhaps another game in this system, so I'm not giving up on multiplayer. Um, 
But, you know, for, for the moment, it is what it is. No, that's and I don't want to belabor the point. I just thought these these were some some observations to make about it. It's very interesting. I never, I've never. It's, this is a first, and it's you're right. Yeah. No, it's it's an interesting example of these scenarios are designed so perfectly for play against an AI uh, whose whose job is really just to hang on. Uh, and maybe disrupt your uh, advance where possible. Uh, but yes, the, the designing for two people to play against each other becomes... I don't know, Bruce, I would almost say it's much more contrived, uh, just from my experience, you know, board wargaming as well, where usually, you know, they, they, they've played around with the turn limit so much and the starting position so much that even if the scenario looks really like it really should be lopsided, uh, there's still, you know, you've still got a chance for one player to stay in, uh, you know, and everything comes down to the last turn, which I actually tend to sometimes find really frustrating, uh, that, you know, th at that point, then everything's sort of straight-jacketed uh, into following, you know, the same pattern over and over. Uh, so, yeah, I just, I, I do think that, you know, designing a satisfying multiplayer war game uh, is, is just really, really difficult. I've got tons of abandoned yeah. uh, play-by-email games right. to prove it. Right. Right, yeah, I don't, it's like I said, I don't want to belabor the point. Yeah. I just thought there was some interesting things. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff to talk about at Unity yeah. Command, and I, I, you were going to talk about AI, and then we need to talk about supply and stuff like that, so go go ahead. Well, and I suppose they're probably a little bit linked, but so you brought up the Stalingrad uh, campaign, uh, the Stalingrad battle uh, in, in particular, the German advance. And I actually wanted to bring that up because that was probably one of my favorite uh, missions in Unity of Command, because... Uh, the 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 first time I won it, and I I, I didn't win it well. I I think I took it took the objective on the final possible turn. But uh, if you know if, if you were to look at the map of the approach on Stalingrad, there's a there's a railroad line, uh, I think heading along the southern at the southern side of the map uh, that like you know, will supply the Germans, and then there's sort of a big vacant uh, step to the north. Uh, that doesn't have good supply uh, to, to go across. But so, uh, you know, the first time I was playing it, I just played this entire game where I was trying to just drive along that railroad line and get a breakthrough uh, so that I could take the city. And that just that that just didn't work. Uh, and so midway through, as my units were sort of stalling out, I had to change what I was doing as the Germans and sort of sit back and... Actually, what the Soviets did at that point was they began attacking and counterattacking and advancing away from their own supply lines. And that enabled me to sort of break through in the north, roll them up, and take Stalingrad uh, in sort of an envelopment maneuver. It, it felt very cool. But what I wanted, but what specifically jumped out at me is that in that scenario, the Soviets uh, seemed a little more aggressive, a little more willing to send their armor out and try to actually drive you back uh, and, and, and push you back along, along the map. Whereas in a lot of other scenarios, I noticed the AI uh, will actually tend to fall back and uh, park around uh, key objectives, sort of set up second lines of defense and... Uh, you know, make sure that if there is a breakthrough, uh, it's not going to be fatal. My question is, 
you know, I see these different AI behaviors on different scenarios. You know, in the Stalingrad scenario, the AI is, atta- is aggressive. In other scenarios, the AI is a little more passive and more willing to fall back. How much of this is scripting? Uh, how much are you sort of telling the AI, like, go here, do this? Uh, and how much of it is the AI just sort of reacting to the decision uh, dynamically? Well, actually, <laughs> it's funny because you, you, you nailed it. The... Uh, what we do is uh, we are not scripting, we are hinting the AI. Um, and the hints are basically, uh, if you, in the, in the latest version of the game, there's a scenario editor. I don't know if you guys tried it. I, I, I have not played with the scenario, the scenario editor, I'm sorry to say. Yeah, okay, but the, uh, in the scenario editor, you, when you make your own scenarios, you can add hints to the AI. And there are uh, different hints that you can add. Um, one hint that we used uh, in the Stalingrad scenario, scenario is the sort of uh, defend by attacking. It's a very aggressive tactic. Uh, and we sort of suggest to the AI that uh, around uh, the city of Stalingrad uh, the, uh, that it defends aggressively through this defend with attack tactics. In different entire scenarios there might be other hints. The AI will eventually sort of compute uh, a best uh, strategy to use, uh, but we sort of provide these tactics uh, to sort of guide AI behavior. And, and you're right, the, in, the, uh, in the Stalingrad scenario, we use this particular aggressive tactic called uh, uh, defend with attack. If you, if you make scenarios now with the new version, it's available to you as the scenario de- designer, but y- you need to be careful with it because you know, if if you hint too much, it can lead to suboptimal AI behavior. But you know, it's kind of uh, it's interesting that you noticed, Rob. Uh, it, it it was it was striking because it it felt. Um... Well, it was one of those scenarios, right, where I felt like I was sort of doing the classic German thing, uh, you know, fall back before Soviet advance, let them exhaust themselves, and then destroy, you know, four or five divisions in the space of, you know, a few attacks. Uh, but so when you're hinting the AI, uh, is it like, you know, tell me, because the scenarios are, are so well designed across unity of command. And I guess I'm curious, like, you know, like, you know, give me, like, give me an example of, you know, like, how many hints do you sort of give the AI to start with, and how much uh, do you let its uh, core, core programming just sort of, sort of guide it? What is the, what is the optimal way to get the AI, because it is a fierce opponent, what is the optimal way to get the AI to put up a great fight? We have, I'm just looking at it, we have 12 types of, uh, of, uh, AI hints, um, you know, interesting, like seven or eight deal with supply. So there you go. Hmm. Um, but typically, you would only give a handful of hints, like five or six. You would give to the because the AI doesn't have it's. Uh, it, it's actually a fairly technical uh, discussion. The AI doesn't really uh, analyze the map all that much, uh, or cannot analyze some things on the map. So you have to tell the AI, sometimes you need to mark a crucial bridge or a crucial area that needs to be defended. Um, basically, the code does not have all the, all the information. So, but you typically, in a scenario, only need to give like two or three hints. Um, 
about the positioning and, and aggressiveness to the AI. And that's about it. Do not, you know, if people are listening who are making these scenarios, do not overhint. It, it's not necessary. The AI will typically do the right thing. Just here and there, uh, you need to put a hint. So uh, regarding the, the, whole, uh, the whole supply thing, uh, I think it's, and, and I guess just the, the whole game in terms of the way that you lay the game out on the, on the map where you have the, um, you said that the, the front line is sort of a, a sort of an extra game mechanic, but the supply, it sort of feels like a, this, you know, that you have the, the supply sources that radiate out the supply and, uh, it really makes the game all about the, uh, all about the supply sources. I mean, the whole game is about cutting off people's supply because, Units behavior, unit behavior changes so greatly uh, be- between the way that it is when units are supplied and when they're not. Um, did you? St- how did you start out with the in, the in the design? You said you had you had you had uh, in your research and just in your general reading, you you had noticed that that kind of focus. Um, did did you start out thinking, okay, we're gonna we're gonna basically have these these units. Um, in very in different supply states, and then that'll kind of drive the whole game. Or did you add that? How did that come about? Actually, that came sort of the other way around than what you describe it. The, mm-hmm. uh, I was, <clears throat> well, not, not well. I was determined to have supply from the get-go, but I was never going. To, I was never imagining that I was going to make a game that is all about supply. And you can hear people commenting, "Man, it's a game about supply." That was never my intention. Uh, <clears throat> the supply sort of... I, I wanted to have supply, and I wanted to have supply that is more meaningful uh, than what you have, like, say, in Panzer General, where uh, supply is basically a, an enfor- uh, enforced one-turn break on your units. Like, you have to stop and resupply the unit, which I thought that was uh, pretty pointless. Um, so I wanted to have supply, but... I, uh, but the, that's not how the supply mechanic came about. Where this came about is that I was trying to make a game uh, with uh, continuous battle lines. Um, that's that's basically the motivation, and it's, it's kind of complicated, but bear with me. Um, the I was always wondering, not like coming like with complete naivety into reading these books about war. You sort of do wonder why do these guys sort of arrange these units in, in those parallel lines? That was like, you know, if you're very naive, you can sort of ask yourself that question. And if you play games like, for example, Panzer General, then you don't, really don't need to arrange your unit that way. You can play in other ways. In fact, that's how you play Panzer General. <clears throat> and so I was looking for sort of motivation for the player, purely, you know, from a game design standpoint that would sort of force the player to protect the integrity of his lines, that would sort of uh, make you worry about protecting your line. <clears throat> and then, when I was looking at how to do supply, it sort of came to me that you could sort of marry the two. And so, <clears throat> the supply and your worry about being left out of supply sort of became um, the main mechanism by which you sort of enforce you know, the, the uh, sort of motivation for the player to keep his units in battle lines. So that's how it came about, sort of from a different direction. Uh, and then when I sort of <clears throat> figured that out, um, then I sort of looked at the numbers, you know, 
uh, how many days these units would be uh, sort of encircled, and then what happened, and what was the typical, you know, what happened in reality historically on the front, and that's how it tuned the effects of of supply. Um, and so, how about the rest of the way that that you put the you put the game together in terms of uh, everything? I mean, the numbers are very they're sort of concrete numbers. Um, the uh, you know you can see what that you have. Um, uh, discrete benefits uh, that you had the, the bombardment and the entrenchment, things like that. Um, do you just kind of layer that on there when you were designing that, that you were going to make a, a Panzer General type uh, game with with uh, with this? Because I mean, you could have gone a completely different way. I mean, uh, into uh, I think a little bit more of a of a course in pocket kind of complexity, and you didn't. What 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 was the the thinking behind that? Well, I think we got about the same complexity. It's just that it's made through fewer mechanics. So I think you sort of, uh, I think I just wanted to make sure that you don't have, I wanted to make sure that you don't have unnecessary mechanics. Uh, you know, if you have a few and then you get complexity sort of arise from a smaller number of mechanics, that seems to me something that's desirable in game design. Mm -hmm. um, but from, there are many influences, uh, indeed, from Course and Pocket. For example, the, uh, the, the the combat sheet, which sort of, as you said, lays out everything for you mm -hmm. that happens in a battle. Right. That's really the, the combat advisor from Course and Pocket. Okay. Um, except that, of course, battles in Course and Pocket involve uh, a little bit more factors. Mm -hmm. um, but I was happy to abstract a fair number of those. Um, Sometimes, you know, I just looked at, I'm, you know, I come from an engineering background, so I was looking, you know, yes, there are like 30 factors there coming into this calculation, but realistically, there are only like four or five degrees of freedom, so why have more than, you know, I, I, I mean, I was just looking at it and said, okay, you can sort of reduce this to sort of five or four influences as the question, uh, of, you know, how to pick the right ones. Uh, to sort of make them both feel realistic and, you know, get the desired effect. So that was like a little bit of juggling before I found the formula. That I, I, think, I feel like a lot of war games kind of struggle to make the effects of supply uh, readily apparent. They're there if you know what to look for and you, sort of using, uh, you know, historical common sense you know it's not good to like drive a tank division uh, you know, off into the middle of the tundra and leave it there. But I love that in Unity of Command, you know, it's it's represented as this, you know, the use of these these steps, these little these little filled pips uh, beneath each unit, and then it, you know, as as the unit uh, is either suppressed or as it begins to run out of supply, uh, those just begin to fail to replenish, uh, and, and so I, I it's it, it makes it so immediately comprehensible as to what is happening to your units there on the very edge of your supply line. You forget the red exclamation marks. Well, I don't see those very often because I don't let my units get cut off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but no, that's that's a, that's a very good point. I I do think, but actually talking about the red exclamation marks um, and the really scary black exclamation mark. 
you know, you, you, you talk about, you know, you, you sort of envisioned it as, you know, the, this game sort of about front lines and battle lines. But, uh, you know, I don't know, like, I, I think for me, I see it as a game of almost like a game about making cuts uh, is the best way I can describe it, I guess. When I, like, I, I, I don't know, like, when I, when I find myself looking at a scenario, I see, yes, I see the front lines, but actually, for me, all I'm trying to read is, you know, where places that I can sort of stab through and create, you know, encirclements, and what are the risks of trying to do that. Uh, so, so the way I approach it is really this game about, uh, you know, breakthrough. Uh, and, and trying to avoid, uh, you know, avoid a front line. Really, uh, you know, for me, it's the 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 you know the the two facing fronts. For me, that's the enemy. I, I the, when I see that at the start of the scenario, I look for ways to break that. Um, I don't know, like 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 Bruce, like how did you know? How did you read Unity of Command? You know, when you, when you first saw it, like as to what it was really about. Uh, I read Little Bobbleheads, I have to say. That was the first thing. I, I For a long time, I was like, wow, look at these bobbleheads. They've got an Eastern Front game, and there are bobbleheads playing it. Um, that, that's basically what the, my whole uh, first reaction to the game was. But no, I, I agree with you. I think that any anybody who's playing any game about the Eastern Front and who knows anything about the Eastern Front is immediately going to try to encircle something. Uh <laughs> So I mean that's the and and it was and I guess I I was really I was really delighted when I played it I I started encircling things and I was like wow that this really works I mean this is this is what I need to be doing um and uh, and it just I mean there's a certain you know I was I wasn't on the Eastern Front nobody who plays these war games now I mean in the old days there were but nobody who plays these war games now was on the Eastern Front so um, I have really no idea how what you know what a real eastern front war game should feel like however i think we've all internalized the idea of what we think it should feel like and you know you need to command really does a good job of giving the germans this you know really wide uh latitude to but but then also a very uh just uh, this relentless demanding timetable uh where the germans don't have the um the uh, they have the freedom of movement. They don't, but they don't have the freedom of of sort of time. And uh, I think it's interesting though that um, the way that these games work. And I've been reading a lot about when I was playing uh, the War in the East. I was I was reading a lot more about the Eastern Front even than I had in the past. And and uh, a lot of the sort of newer books keep commenting on now that the Soviet archives are open that the um, the Soviets actually counterattacked constantly throughout in Barbaros and also they actually did it in 1942 around uh, Varanej and um, they uh, they really uh, I mean they just threw these tanks you know, thousands of tanks uh, into these battles and because they were so bad at coordinating their uh, their units and their uh, uh, their their um, different formations you know everything acted kind of independently and their their artillery wasn't well planned and, and they just they kind of made a hash of everything so even though they constantly attacked they were very uh they were just really ineffective but it kept the germans sort of um it kept the germans constantly it just wore them down and uh and 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 i think contributed a lot to or at least the scholarship things contributed a lot to uh the fact that they they kind of got to uh as 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 uh Thomas said they didn't really get to to stalingrad by bus they actually fought their uh fought their way there uh through a whole bunch of very difficult battles that's the one thing you don't get in a lot of these games because 
no Soviet player is going to keep attacking if those attacks don't work. Um, and in um, in uh, war in the east, you know, the, the the units have these small combat factors because they're they're basically ineffective in terms of of uh, Soviets can't really attack. So why are you going to attack with things that uh, that have no chance of success? And I just wonder if there's a way of, of kind of simulating that uh, rather than, although, it's, I mean, I have to say, as a German player, it's a lot more fun rather than fighting off these, you know, really super annoying Soviet counterattacks to just take your take your tanks and just start driving them around and encircling things. I mean, and the and the, the game aesthetic, you know, makes that really, you know, look really attractive. Like, oh, look at that pocket. I made that pocket. And you reduce the pocket. And so... Um, but uh, but that's I mean when I played when I first played the game that was the the thing that just grabbed me immediately. Boy, one of my one of my saddest Unity of Command moments was when I I went I took uh, a, a Germanized a mechanized a German mechanized spearhead and went and made a big encirclement around some Soviet troops, and I left the back of the pocket open with a direct line to my main supply hub. Mm-hmm. And one Soviet unit just had enough movement point to go and park on my supply hub, mm-hmm. and like by turn two, I lost the scenario. Yeah. Uh, it was it was truly depressing. But I, I, you know, that's something I've actually noticed a lot in uh, Red Turn as well. Is that I got very comfortable playing the German player because your units tend to be very effective. Uh, you know, you can you, you make an attack with a with a Panzer unit on a Soviet uh, infantry uh, division, and it's probably going to just just roll over that infantry. Uh, you know, playing in red turn, I find like you know, there's I'm fighting the Germans, but I'm also fighting the tendency of my units to make no headway against the Germans. I think in, uh, in, in red turn, I've seen the little repulsed notification uh, pop up. Uh, you know, far more times than than than, than I'm really happy with, but I find it, it forces this um. It forces this different way of, uh, of of sort of playing the Soviets in, in that, you know, increasingly now what it, you know the, the the trick the game has taught me is, it's okay to throw away infantry divisions that it can be fine to give up, you know, four, you know, a, a four strength infantry division and see those four pips just completely destroyed and the division's gone if you take a german unit down by one down by one uh step. You know, if you can just knock it down that much, that's a fair exchange and that's this huge leap uh from playing the german uh side to the soviet side. Well, yes, if you if you read the books, you will find that uh the soviet doctrine Basically, forbid uh, the the you know the general uh, commanding the operation to sort of commit the armored troops before there was a penetration in their uh, lingo of the time. So they would sort of force uh, they would make the breach in the line intentionally with uh, huge artillery concentrations and by sort of uh, pushing one after the other infantry unit into the breach. And they would only commit their tanks after they have uh, sort of created a, a breach. Uh, so, you know, if, if that's how you see uh, sort of the, the you know, if, if that's how this came across to you, then we did our job because that's what the Soviet style of play should be. We sort of targeted that, but, you know, you just cannot sort of get it 100%. Now, something we talk about, lot about on the show is 
you know, the, the, trying to balance creating challenging scenarios that will keep players coming back, but the risk that what you've created is not actually a good scenario, it's just a puzzle uh, that's very hard to solve. And I feel like, you know, I, I've played enough Unity of Command now that I don't think, for the most part, it is a puzzle war game. I still feel like uh, there's there's a, a number of ways to approach these different scenarios. I find, you know, I'm encouraged to try new things and play them differently. Uh, there, there, there have been a couple where maybe I did feel there was a correct solution that really I, I needed to discover, but I just wanted to talk about uh, the the challenge of scenario design and how you keep, you know, how you offer players good challenge, but you don't make it a game where I just have to get inside your head and figure out what solution you had in mind. I don't really think that's that's down to scenario design. When when we design scenarios, uh, I mean, for the initial game, I designed the scenarios myself, and for Red Turn, uh, Peter designed the scenarios, uh, and I sort of uh, we just discussed them uh, together. I don't think it, that that comes down to scenario design. I think that it's sort of in, there is enough variability in in the game system um, that. You know, if if the scenario is is of of any uh, you know of any larger size, then it will sort of not be a puzzle almost by itself. Um, if, you know, if it's a smaller scenario, it could sort of devolve into a puzzle. Uh, but that's really because uh, you, you know you, you, victory you know the victory uh, condition is is a turn limit. And so, you know, to sort of to tighten the victory condition, it has to be a tight turn limit, and that's why sometimes it can devolve into a, into a puzzle. But I, I don't see it all that often. Even the even the very shortest of the scenarios, like the Terex scenario, I just I can I I can win it in like three different ways, um, and it's never really the same. Um, so I just don't think it's that much of an issue. I, s I see why people say that, but um, I don't think it's down to scenario design. I think that uh, the game system, uh, as I discussed, because it's sort of unstable with these encirclements that can happen rapidly, uh, and the AI can sort of threaten you to, to do a reverse encirclement on you. Um, the game is sort of unstable in that way that... Um, um, you know, it can easily go one way or the other. If you add some weather into the mix, the weather can sort of, uh, you know, mess with your plans. So, <clears throat> to me, it felt like enough variability. Um, it could, you know, it could. Well, I, I don't see it as a big issue. I've seen com I've seen comments about it, but you know, people play it uh, and enjoy it. And I think what you said, the sort of. Uh, that sort of impression is is the prevalent one. The, see that actually that actually surprises me a little bit, just because I've always I don't know about you, Bruce, but I've always actually regarded this as more a function of scenario design than anything else. Now, now that I hear you say that, I do flash back to uh, say uh, Panzer General, and it's true that a lot of the systems actually sort of encourage uh, basically having to solve the scenario. But I, I just had sort of assumed that you know no matter what the game design was, uh, that the the that the real that the real challenge came down to crafting something uh, that was that was balanced and yet open enough uh, that 
there there were many ways for players to approach it. Um, well, I think the corollary to what you're to what T- Tomislav is saying, or is that you know it might be that you actually have to design a puzzle game, whereas if you have a fairly robust system and you just sort of set up what you think is a, a good uh, you know a, a good scenario and uh, you know make a few you know set up some different objectives and you have a fairly you know uh, diverse uh, force pool whatever then there are probably going to be multiple ways to solve that and so if you want to make the if you want to force the player into one specific uh, sort of puzzle solution to your game, then you're actually going to have to go ahead and do that. You're going to have to s- slowly peel away all the alternate solutions and and find ways of blocking those alternate solutions until there really is only one way to do it. So it might be that the scenario design actually is something that you have to do in a puzzle game and naturally doesn't occur that way. Yeah, yeah, what I, yeah, greatly what Bruce said. When we make scenarios, our biggest concern is is really how to tell the story of a particular battle rather than how to make the scenario um, not puzzly. I mean, we sort of concern ourselves with making the scenario interesting and we sort of concern ourselves with making the scenario sort of reflect the, the historical challenge. That's, that's our main goal when designing scenarios. But we don't concern ourselves with puzzles because obviously if, if sometimes uh, you know a dominant strategy pops up, which is what Bruce is saying, there's just a single way to do it, then we might sort of do something to to sort of um, uh, even things out to, to sort of iron it out. But it doesn't happen all that often. Uh, it's not. A, I, I don't think it's primarily a scenario design issue with Unity of Command. Uh, with Unity of Command, when you design scenarios, the, the biggest concern is really um, telling the, the story. So the, the operational challenge, the challenge that you face as a player, should be similar to the historical challenge that you get as the commander had, and that's that's our main concern. So, you know, as, as we approach uh, the end of the show here, I'm curious sort of about the future of 2 by 2 and what you'll be doing next and really when I when I think about this question there's there's sort of uh, you know uh, two prongs to it I guess um, see now I can't stop thinking in terms of like armored spearheads uh, so everything <laughs> is just going to be framed in terms of encirclements uh, so my so I, I, I see I see two issues here and one is that about the adaptability of this system uh, do you, do you see uh, what you're doing in Unity of Command, uh, the Unity of Command system, as being uh, capable of modeling tons of different uh, types of battles and conflicts uh, in different eras, uh, or is you know your next step to create maybe some other system? Uh, you know, are there are there other sorts of warfare that you would feel like you want to cover but will require a new design? Well, the answer to your first question is no. I don't think the system is infinitely adaptable, and in fact, I think it's uh, it's rather restricted to the to the period and the Eastern Front. Um, if, if you even if you go to the Western Front, it, it's going to break down. Um, Would it work in Africa? Uh, n- not unmodified. No, I think um, for the simple reason of scale. If you look at how many units are involved. Um, and then, for the simple reason of scale, it doesn't work. Uh, 
what most people don't realize is that Rommel in Africa had like two panzer divisions. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, how would that work? Uh, right. Well, you'd have to change it to like a, you know, regimental level or brigade level or something smaller than that. Yeah, but in some, in some of the battles, you know, he would like literally have like 60, 70 tanks. So, you know, what do you do with that? So, uh, my current thinking of the future is that, uh, you know, I've investigated these different battles on, on, uh, in the West, uh, and I sort of, um, I have different ideas for, for mechanics that could be used to sort of bring those to life. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to design, uh, you know, we're going to design and implement a bunch of these mechanics and put them together and, you know, see what works. As to choosing a particular, you know, campaign, um, I'm really not above picking the one that works best. So, uh, you know, if, you know, we're going to pick the mechanics, uh, see what works best, and then probably that would be the headline campaign for the next when do you think that are you working on that now or i mean thinking about it or where how how much time do we have to wait to get the the next thing from you guys uh we're not working on it yet there's going to be another dlc for this game um and uh, after that i think uh in the second half of this year we're going to start working on the new game okay uh but but i i think the process is going to be to be as i just described it we're going to see you know how we can model all these different things that are not in the game everything from you know paratroopers amphibious landings you, you know you name it there's the war in the west was much more sophisticated uh technically um and so when we put all of this together, then um, we'll see what works best with this engine and how to put the game together. You, you have to have a system and you have to have gameplay that works and then you can build on it. That's, that's uh, basically my philosophy. Can you tell us what the DLC is going to be or can you give us a hint what it might be? Well, how many hints do you need, Robert? I just told you it doesn't work beyond the Eastern Front. We've covered 42, 43, right, and right. 43, just, 45. Okay, so, all right. I look forward to Unity of Command Barbarossa. Yeah, you said it. <laughs> Watch. It'll be the Winter War. You'll surprise yeah. us all. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Regarding sales, uh, you know, something... You know, uh, on this show, we certainly uh, wring our hands a fair bit about making sure that you know people go out and uh, you know try you know try war games, and we're always so happy when something is accessible that I don't have to. You know, th there's a war game I can recommend to somebody who maybe doesn't have uh, a private library on the Eastern Front, um, and, and so I'm I'm just I, I'm curious. You know, kind of what your experience has been with sales, how it's done on Steam. Uh, do you feel like you've reached a broader audience than most war games do? Definitely. I, I just uh, the I, I think just getting us on Steam uh, was that step that sort of uh, really expanded the number of people that enjoyed the game. Uh, we did very well before Steam for a war game. You know, there's this level of sales that war games do, and we were—I was very happy with it. Um, but then on Steam, we're—it's sort of just completely off the scale in in terms of what you know war games would sell. Um, and I, I'm just really happy with it. It—I've—I've I've exceeded my highest. When I was going into this game, I had like 
some idea of how much it could sell. I've exceeded this several times over. Uh, I'm really, really happy about it. The, we're using the, the funds to fund the next game. Um, and, you know, if you haven't played Unity of Command, you should uh, check it out. Um, you know, people have voted. <laughs> Now, then, one other thing I just I, I was curious I was curious about is I, I feel like when it when it came out on Steam you had a special launch price. Um, I see now it's twenty dollars, but when it came out, uh, was it down to fifteen less? Yeah, uh, and and, I, and I'm I, I'm just curious again because uh, you know something that we talked about uh, a few uh, a couple months back. Uh, Bruce, you and I with uh, Rowan Kaiser was sort of about war game prices and uh, you know the hesitation that a publisher certainly like Matrix has to ever drop the price uh, because I think there's this fear that if you bring the price down for a little for 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 long, um, it will be hard to bring it back up and bring it up to a good level that will sustain ongoing development. Uh, and I guess, you know, I don't so much have a question uh, as I would just like a little comment about, you know, your experience with sort of finding the right price uh, for Unity of Command and uh, what works best for you guys as developers. Well, first time I'm going to say that I'm a complete noob at this, uh, so I just I totally don't know what I'm doing. When I, you know, okay. When I started, you know, I started. I had to publish this game in one way or another, and what I do at every step of the way is I Google. You know, what do you do now? Um, but I think that I think that lowering the price only works if you know you can reach you know many people. That's that simple. Because on Steam, of course, we could lower the price to fifteen bucks when we were on the front page of Steam, and just a bunch of people just bought. On Steam, you get this phenomenon where people buy the game even if they don't play it. Uh, you know, you, you get the impulse buys. You get it's in this storefront that millions of people see, and it's a completely different uh, sort of economy than what a typical war game is in. So I think it would be uh, rather rich if I just said, uh, you know, you guys should drop down your prices. You know, given given the sort of um, typical numbers, the sales numbers that war games get, the prices make sense. It's, uh, it, it, you know, it costs, you, you know, these games are technical things. You need to have programmers, artists, and so on. It costs money to make them. I actually support, you know, these prices. We can lower our prices down because we have, you know, a number of people looking at us. I'm grateful for it, but I just don't think it would work for all war games. All right, that's uh, that's a very fair that's a very fair assessment. Uh, so I think that will do it for today's show. As always, I'd like to thank our producer Michael Hermes for putting this episode together. Uh, Bruce for sparing a Saturday afternoon for this, and uh, Tom Slav for joining us on his Saturday night. Uh, until next week, this has been Three Moves Ahead. Uh, say good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Yeah, good night, guys.